2 Timothy chapter 2. We're finishing up our series on small groups, on, on home groups. I uh, hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope you guys have understood uh, where I'm coming from when we talk about home groups and why this is vital to who we are as a church. Who we are, it's the life of Lindsay Lane North, is uh, you cannot plug in enough on a Sunday morning to be plugged into Lindsay Lane North, to be plugged into the culture of what we do as a church. You, we desperately want you to be involved in small group. Uh, I love what uh, Rick Warren said. He said, as churches get larger, they have to get smaller. All right, and what he means by that is small groups. As churches get larger, they have to get smaller in other ways. Uh, and so, and smaller in our communities and smaller in how we love on uh, one another. But today I'm excited. We're going to be talking about another purpose of small group, and that's evangelism, reaching others for the gospel of Christ. And so we're going to look at reaching in small group. As I was studying, I came across a folk tale, Indian folk tale, not Indian like Native American, Indian like actually over in India, uh, Indian folk tale that went something like this. There was a, a, a ruler that lived in India and uh, the ruler was over a, a certain tract of land, and he had people that served him, had people that owned land, and, and worked underneath him. And they went through a period of plenty. And in that period of plenty, their cash crop was rice. And so what he said was, hey, listen, in order to protect everyone in my kingdom, I want you to give me, I want you to give me any rice that you, your family, cannot survive on. So only bring, keep only what you can survive on, and then we're going to create a storehouse for you to survive if something were to happen, a time of famine or something like that. We would have enough rice in our storehouse to meet everyone's need, and everybody would survive the horrible famine. Well, that's exactly what happened. Families... She began working the land and, and getting the, the rice be, crop became, started coming in. And as they, it would come in, the families would hold back what they needed to live on and they would take every bit of the rest of their crop to their ruler and it was stored in a storehouse. Well, sure enough, a couple years went by and all of a sudden here comes a time of famine. And so in the famine, while they were in the time of famine, uh, the ruler got a little nervous he wanted to make sure that he was taken care of. So instead of opening up the storehouses to everybody that was there in his land, he decided to hog it all for himself and his family and the people in his court. And so uh, one day they were traveling. He was, some people were bringing the rice to the palace in order to feed the king, the ruler. And a little girl, wise little girl, saw that there was a small cut in the bag and every few steps a grain of rice would fall out. So the little girl began following the, the pack mule that had all the rice in it and began gathering up the rice. And when they got to the gates of the city, she was confronted. And she said, no, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to take any of this grain. In fact, here it is, I want to give it to the king. Had just a small handful of rice. I want to give it to the king because I didn't want any of it to go to waste. And so the ruler brought her in and was shocked by her her honesty and said hey thank you for doing that we really appreciate it and i'll tell you what we'll do whatever i will give you what, anything that you like you just let me know and we'll do whatever it is that you like and she said you know what i would really like what i would ask for is one grain of rice 
can't tell, I'm holding a grain of rice here. One grain of rice. She said, I, I want one grain of rice, but here's the deal. I want this one grain of rice doubled by the quantity that I have every single day for a month. So the end of, obviously at day one, she went home with one kernel, one grain of rice. The second day, she went home with two. Third day, four. Fourth day, eight. Am I doing my math right? Are y'all still following? And by the end, <laughs> no, East Lawrence didn't, East Lawrence education didn't get you that far? Ran out of toes. So over the course of 10 days, for the course of 10 days, the ruler thought, man, this little girl is honest, but boy, she's not real smart. Because at the end of 10 days, that is the amount of rice the little girl had accumulated. Roughly one tablespoon of rice. In fact, the ruler thought she would have been smarter If she'd have just kept the rice in her hand, she would have had much more. The end of ten days, she had one tablespoon. But as the days clicked on, at the end of day 14, the ruler realized this little girl was receiving a whole cup of rice. Roughly a whole cup of rice every single... I don't know who was counting this rice... Must have been a very bored individual. But she, had only, she was only receiving, at the end of day 14, one cup of rice. At the end of day 16, she received about a pound. That's pretty much what I have in this bag right here, is a pound of rice. By day, uh, by day 17, day 17, she had accumulated roughly a four-pound bag of rice was beginning to grow. And the ruler thought, well, you know, that's, that's more than she had, but it's certainly not enough to worry about. And so the days began to click on by. Day 22, the ruler was giving 50, a 50-pound 50 bag of rice to this little girl. By day 25, she was given a 500-pound bag of rice. And by day 31, this little girl had received over 17 tons of rice. In fact, the entire storehouse was wiped out and the people had plenty for the length of the famine. So why do I tell that story? That story tells us the amazing thing that happens when something very tiny begins to multiply. If we're not careful, we'll treat our life as my Christian duty is to tell someone about Jesus. So we'll go co-call evangelism or we'll go across the world, right? Because we feel guilty for not telling people about Jesus across the street. So we go across the world to tell somebody about Jesus. And then we say, well, well, we've done our duty because we've added to the kingdom. Church, let me tell you, if you're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, it will not be as much through addition as it will be through multiplication. Now, it took a long time for this little grain of rice 
to turn into 17 tons. But by the end of the month, it had turned into 17 tons. And it didn't look like it was accumulating much at the beginning. But eventually, as time went by, 17 tons of rice was given to this little girl because this one little grain of rice had multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And so today, as we look at small groups, I want to look at what it looks like to reach people, to multiply ourselves in other people. Not add to the kingdom of God, right? Well, I've added one here, I've added one here, I've picked up two or three here or here. But I have multiplied the kingdom of God. What does that look like? That looks like us investing in people. It looks like first us being where we need to be with the Lord. And if you're going, oh, well, there you go. I'm not where I need to be with the Lord. Hey, guess what? God hasn't moved. Today, you can get right with him. And then you reproduce what God is doing in your life. You reproduce in someone else who reproduces it in someone else. And we become people making disciples. You see, the people in the business world have this understood. We understand a pyramid scheme and how that works, do we not? Before long, you have one fat cat at the top that has multiplied himself in one or two or three others, who multiply themselves in one or two or three others, who multiply themselves in one or two or three others. Before you know it, you have an entire enterprise of people that are paying this person's salary. Right, And they are living high off the hog. Right, Business world understands that, but we need to be willing to multiply ourselves and others. It takes a long time, and it's difficult. But church, I promise you, like this little girl, like this little story, it is worth it to multiply ourselves in people's life. And so the first thing we're going to look at is from ministry to multiplication. From ministry to multiplication. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. Then you, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in, G- in Christ Jesus. Right? Be strengthened. Not, and, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here, in this passage alone, in two verses of Scripture, we have four generations of disciples. We have Paul who is saying to be strengthened, Timothy, to instruct faithful men who will instruct faithful men. Four generations of believers, four generations of disciples that, are all, that all come about as a result of multiplication. Listen, we can spend our whole life doing a lot of things, chasing a lot of things. And I'll never forget when I, I'd been in ministry, I'd been at Lindsay Lane. Lindsay Lane was my first full time position. So, what Brother Dusty saw in a 21 year old and a 19 year old, uh, fresh out of seminary, we weren't even married. We were, in, uh, she, we were engaged at the time when I actually came on staff. Uh, 21 years old, and people say, Well, how did you know that God was calling you to Lindsay Lane? And I said, Because they were accepting resumes. That's how I knew, right? Real spiritual. Uh, I knew they were accepting resume, and they called me back. What were they thinking? Becca was actually three months older than the oldest student that we had in our student ministry. To put that in perspective, and by the way, that student was all about that, let me just tell you. Not really. All right, so she did not appreciate that at all. But uh, 
I'm, I, as I began getting involved in ministry, man, I started realizing the toll that ministry can take on you. And probably four or five years into our ministry, man, I was really give out. I'd went through a really dark time. There were other things that were going on in our life. But I, I had went through a really difficult time, and I went to a Timothy Barnabas conference, and Johnny Hunt said something that is not profound, but it is absolutely important. And he said this, the most important thing that you can do as a pastor is make disciples of your people. You know what I realized about five, four or five years that I'd been in ministry? I was an event coordinator. I was a child care provider. I was a uh, youth camp instructor and facilitator. I was a small group leader. I was a parent uh, communicator. But I was not a discipler. Of people, and I learned very quickly if I was going to be, if I was going to see tangible difference made in my ministry, it was going to be done in a long, intentional investment in a few rather than surface touches with many. And so, can I tell you right now, some of the sweetest times in my ministry didn't come when I had a room full of people. Some of the sweetest things in my ministry came when I was around three or four. Or five other people. I had invested hours and hours and hours into them. And I watched before my eyes as they got it. Now, that's not me. And, and that doesn't happen with me because I'm a pastor, right? You're a preacher and that's supposed to happen, right? I'm glad that you can make disciples. That's good, right? It didn't happen because of that, right? And matter of fact, if there's anybody in this room that feels inadequate to make disciples, let me take that burden off of you because it's me. I've never met a person in the world, I don't care. Look, when David Platt said in his book that he didn't feel like he was a proper discipler of people, I realized nobody feels that way. There will never be a time in your life where you go, you know what, I'm ready to invest in the lives of a few. It'll never happen. Almost like the enemy ensures that it'll never happen. But through our inadequacies, I've seen God do incredible things in small group. I've seen him reach people. I've seen it multiply to others. And so he says, look, what you've, what I've learned, what you've learned from me, teach then give me some spiritual grandchildren, right? Teach that to faithful men who are going to teach faithful men who are going to instruct. And before we know it, y'all, we are all here because of the faithfulness of these few. Every single one of us can trace our spiritual heritage to this time in history. The most important thing you can do as a pastor is make disciples. It meant the world to me. Listen to what Dallas Willard says on your screen. A disciple is someone who has moved from being the recipient of the church's mission to being responsible for the church's mission. Does that make sense? There comes a time in your life where you go from being someone who receives things from the church and you begin to be the first part of the process that gives things from the church. Right? You're either, as Charles Spurgeon would say, you're either a missionary or you're a mission field. Right? You're either a mission field, meaning we need to send people to win you, or you're a missionary, meaning you need to be sent to win others. Right? But Dallas Willard said there, we've got to get out of this mindset, right, of, of almost like a football game. Right? I watched my Titans miraculously pull something out of thin air 
and beat the Ravens yesterday. It was crazy. Did not expect it. But I started watching all of these fans around the stadium. And he said, a lot of times we treat our churches this way, right? You got 65,000 fans watching a, a very few fraction of 65,000 people do all the work. And we just cheer them on. He said, that's not the design of the church. The design of the church is to enlist and then mobilize. You're either sought, you're sought first, and then you're a soldier. There's not this middle ground. And matter of fact, the person that has been saved for the shortest amount of time often becomes the greatest discipler because it's fresher on their mind and they're more passionate about it. And so... And so when we think about that, we can't, we got to get out of the mentality of my job is to watch people that are paid to do this, do this, right? And we'll cheer them on and we'll come on Sunday mornings and we'll tithe so that they can do it some more. No, all of us need to be disciples who are making disciples. You can do a lot of things in ministry, but there's nothing more important than the ministry of multiplication. Number two, from multiplication to momentum. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to stay, excuse me, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We'll be in Luke after that. Mark chapter 6, from multiplication to momentum. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, listen what it says. And he, being Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and to give them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Jesus is sending out, towards the beginning of the disciples' ministry, he is sending out these people into Galilee. Sending them out into Galilee. This is the region that they're in. And everywhere they go, he sends them by pair. So how many groups did he send out? Twelve disciples? How many groups did he send out? Six. Right. Six groups. He sends out six groups, and he tells them to go from not to the largest gathering you can find. He tells them to go house to house to house. We find out in other passages they're looking for people of peace. They're looking for people that they can establish connection with. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is on his way to these places and there is momentum that is beginning in his ministry. Jesus has sowed into 12 people. That's important. If Jesus only sowed, really invested into 12 people, who are we to think that we can invest in any more? If the master teacher invested in 12, right? Small group is the key. The entire world was flipped upside down because of the discipleship process of one God-man into 12 individuals who multiplied themselves over and over and over and over again. Momentum was being established and the church was beginning to grow. Everywhere you go, go to the homes. Listen to what it says in verse 12. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. What did they claim? What message did they bring? They just brought the gospel. But let's not overthink it. They just brought the gospel and God began to do a work. 
momentum was beginning in Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry really started gaining traction, was in Galilee. Listen to this Robbie Gallaty quote. When the church becomes an end in itself, it ends. Does that make sense? When church exists for the purposes and the pleasures of the church, it stops being a church. It becomes a community group. It becomes a bunch of well-wishers, right? It becomes just another gathering. When the church exists for the for it, when the church becomes an end in itself, it ends. When small group ministries becomes an end in itself, it ends. Every disciple must make disciples. If you are focused on the needs of yourself and only the needs of yourself, let me tell you, you have stopped ministering. The moment you become more concerned about your needs and the needs of someone else, you've stopped ministry. Some of you may be in here and think, man, have I ever started ministry? If that's true, and my needs, I've ne- has there ever been a time in my life where the needs of someone else has been more important to me than the needs of myself? But when you are seeking your needs beyond beyond the needs of others, you are ceasing to be a ministry. You're ceasing to be the church. Everywhere these disciples went, they brought the gospel. Not because they wanted to be part of a really big movement. (laughs) Their reason is the same as ours. Jesus sent them. Why'd they do it? Because Jesus sent them. Why do we share our faith? Why do we seek to reproduce ourselves in others? Why should we seek to see the kingdom of God advance and momentum for the kingdom? I don't care if it's momentum for Lindsay Lane North, but momentum for the kingdom to begin to get to rolling in this community. Why? Because Jesus sent us. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't convinced that Jesus sent me here. Not because of who I am, but just because I happen to be listening. He sent me. So I came. This multiplication, as we begin to multiply ourselves, I love hearing from old saints of the Lord that have invested in people for years and years and years. You know my favorite thing to listen to? It's like a recognition service when they're getting some prize or some award. And every one by one, people start coming up and sharing about how that person produced, reproduced their spiritual DNA in them. They're, that is magical. That is legacy. And church, that isn't given. That responsibility isn't just given to church leaders. Not just the players on the field. It's given to everybody because you are armed with just as much as I'm armed with. Nothing but the gospel and our testimony of how we relate to it. We're armed with the same stuff. And so momentum began developing. 
Mark 6 shows us this, these 12 went to these homes, found these people of peace. They rejoiced, they found these people of peace, and things started happening. The first church building, this is important, the first church building, we, we all go to church buildings, right? We don't, we're not in one now, right? It's school, and we just happen to meet. This is, this is the church, by the way, right? We are the church. You are the church, right? Not a building. It's not the Lord's house, right, Jeremiah? It's not the Lord's, that's his pet peeve. He's like, welcome to the Lord's house, right? It's not the Lord's house. It's brick and mortar. We are the Lord's house. That's New Testament, right? He's in us, right? So we're the church. We're, we're part of what God is doing in this generation. The first church building, established church building, did not come around until 200 years after Jesus died. So where did they go to church? What did they do for 200? Can you imagine that if that happened today, all of the church buildings? What if God raptured all of the church buildings, right? Before the church, what if he raptured the church buildings? Can you imagine how confused people would be? Well, what do we do? Right For 200 years, there was not a church. And by the way, it was another 100 years before Constantine would make it established religion. Right After his salvation in 312, I think, that he was, he was saved. Right, He was pagan, and then he came to Christ, and that's when he started winning all these battles. So he was like, hey, this Jesus is helping me. So he became a Christian, right? I don't know how genuine, whatever. All right, you know what, I'm just going to drop that. It's church history, okay? But it wasn't for a hundred years after the first church build never came around that it was even a common thing that people went to church. Churches weren't just spouting up everywhere. What did they do? They met in home to home, rejoicing, doing really ordinary things like breaking bread together. And dadgummit, it started the most incredible momentum that we are still riding the wake of. That's what they did. They were the church. Instead of gathering for a church, they were the church. So for momentum, we find ourselves going from momentum to a movement. This wasn't just, wow, they've done a real good thing, right? Remember Gamaliel? Remember what he said? Leave these men alone. Because if it's of God, we can't stop it. If it's of man, it'll stop itself. It'll cool down. Everybody will go their own way, and no one will be the wiser. Leave them alone. But if it's of God, we can't do anything to stop it. Church, we're still here. We're still here. Testimony that what they were doing, there was some scriptural, there was some biblical substance to it. They met in homes. For 200 years, the church grew. And I'm not talking about, man, we had a couple visitors this Sunday, right? I mean, it multiplied over and over and over and over and over and over. All throughout the first century after Jesus, all through the discipleships, all the first century and the second century and third century church fathers, right? It multiplied over and over despite their lack of structure to meet in. That's not the point, and it's never been the point. But they met in small group. They met in homes. I'm going to give you that opportunity. Our church is giving you 
that opportunity to be a part of something that's going to gain traction and something that's going to gain momentum, but it doesn't stop there because it goes from momentum to a movement. Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning, I'm going to take a sip because I'm about to have a spell. Luke chapter 10. Verse 1. Y'all there? Amen. After this, this sounds really familiar, by the way. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Sent them on, two by two. How many? 72. How many people total? 72, right? Sent them two by two. That's a lot of math. I think that's 36. Is that 36? Is that the answer? Right? 36 groups sent them to every town that he was going and told them to look for people of peace. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right? We read that passage of Scripture and we think about, hey, we need to pray for God to send missionaries. That's what we think about, right? We, the, the, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few, right? It's not that we have a harvest problem. Church, we still don't have a harvest problem. Hearts are ready. What we have is a laborer problem. The church, big C, right? The body of Christ, like we have a laborer problem, right? And we think, oh, well, Jesus says we need to pray for the harvest. You know, I think it's awesome. Do you know why he told those people to pray? Because he had already sent them. They were already going, literally, probably on their way to the town that Jesus was going. What's with this is number what five on his list? Yeah, right. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, oh, he said we needed to pray as he as they were going. They were praying. Right. This is the context of Scripture. He sent seventy-two, two by two, thirty-six groups. And as you are going, this is what I want you to talk about. Pray because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. The going is understood. So when you read this passage of Scripture, don't take it out of context and go, I just need to pray for God to send people. You need to understand that you are sent, and then you need to pray for more. You need to pray for others. And what did they do? They went home to home to home. Jesus did it with the twelve, and this is not the same story, but it looks very similar. Almost like the strategy worked. Hey, this worked with 12. Let's do it with 36. Let's do it with these 72 people. And he sent them to every town that he was going to. And they started small. They started in a home. It was a small group. And guess what? God blessed and they multiplied, and they multiplied, and they multiplied until we see a whole, the, the entire empire of Rome saying, you know what? There's so many stinking Christians in this place, let's just make it our religion. Let's just do it, right? They've done it so much and so well, right? We've persecuted them for so long, right? It helped that the emperor was on their side, 
right? He said, well, let's just, it's our, it's our religion. Let's just do it. Okay, Christianity, got it? Yep, got it. Now, then they kind of botched it from there, right? But think about the movement. And it began in small group. Don't tell me because you have a small group that you can't multiply. Don't tell me that you, being insignificant yourself, can't add up to some pretty incredible things. It's not, it's not about the prerequisites that we have. It's not about the things that we can accumulate. It's about who God is, to who he's, what he's given us to do. Small groups are the birthplace of revival. They're the birthplace of revival. Listen to this. Uh, uh, in 1789, England, during the French Revolution, England was about to go through the exact same thing. They had the same class system. They had the same people that were aggravated and angry. They, were, they, were, they, were, they had the exact same thing going that the French had, and they had a revolution, right? Remember, let them, let them eat cake. Remember the guillotine, all these things that got creative with how to kill people, right? Bad stuff going on in, in France, Do you know what saved England, at least partially? Listen to this. In 1789, England would have probably experienced a revolution as bloody as the one in France. But two men, John Wesley and Charles Whitfield, created a network of small groups called class meetings. That's where we get Sunday school, y'all. Class meetings that led a spiritual awakening in England. You know what I believe happened in that country? People realized what's happening socially is second to what's happening in our country spiritually. And they began focusing on not things like, do we have food to eat and how much money do we make and how much does that person over there have? And they began thinking about how they can win others. And it began, both pastors, John Wesley... Charles Whitfield, both pastors, but they invested in small groups. They created this network of small groups, and it truly brought the country of England. According to this researcher, this scholar, it brought them from the brink of revolution, of a bloody revolution. In fact, listen, look at, look at your screens here. Read this with me. Every major revival, this is Albert Wolin. From his book, Miracles Happen in, in Group Bible Study. Not the, the catchiest name of a book, but whatever. That's what the name is. Every major revival has begun by ready access to the Bible and the gathering of believers in small, intimate groups. Every single revival can be traced to accessibility to God's Word. We've got that. And small groups. You want to be something, part of something great for the kingdom of God? Don't just come to church. Invest in church. Invest in others. Would you bow your head? Listen, you can absolutely be part of our gathering if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're welcome, and we want you here every single week. But you can't really be part of the community of believers until you've experienced what Christ has given to believers. Until you have a new life in Christ. 
Right? We want you here. We welcome you here. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, church, I, I, I want to tell you, people, I want to tell you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, you can't experience this. You don't understand this community. Christ has rescued me. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He has rescued me from a very, the very grim prospects of life without Him. Life in my sin. And He offers life to you today. You can be new, made new by Jesus. It's not by you making yourself clean on your own. It's not by you keeping yourself from whatever sin that you struggle with. It comes from surrendering your life to the finished work of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Jesus came as the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sin, and He rose from the dead three days later. And church, if you want to be a part, man, woman, child in this room, if you want to be a part of the family of God, that invitation is open to you today. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there's never been a time where you've repented of your sin, you've turned from it, and you've surrendered your life to Christ. We have counselors that would love to talk to you about that relationship. Talk about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus. You can be part of something that I've been talking about this whole day. You can be part of something that matters. The movement of the kingdom of God, not in a gathering of a bunch of people but in the sweet fellowship and community of a small group. You can invest there. Man, we'd love for you to invest. Maybe you're not sure. right? Maybe you know you don't have a relationship with Christ, but you're not sure. Maybe you don't know if you want this Jesus thing. Can I just invite you to do something? Would you invest in a small group? Would you try it? I believe you'll see enough Jesus in people that you'll be convinced. You'll see enough life change that you'll be convinced. Would you take that bold step of faith before you leave here? Would you sign up for a small group and allow yourself to see Jesus in others? Well, whatever it is, whatever decision you need to make, if you need to surrender your life to Christ, there's counselors in the back. They're in the back left, my left hand, your right hand side of the room. Listen, you can come up to the front. You can talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Christ. But these counselors are there. You don't have to make it a public thing. You don't have to walk up. You can just slip right out from your seat right now. You can slip out of your seat. If you need a relationship with Jesus right now, you can slip out of your seat. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's, uh, nobody's around. They, we, they want, we want to give you this time to respond to Jesus. If you desire a relationship with Christ, would you just slip out of your seat right where you're at? Right where you're at and would you make your way to the back of your right-hand side of this room? There's a counselor that would love to talk to you about how you can have that relationship. Would that be you? Would that be anyone? I need a relationship with Jesus. I want to be a part of something that matters. Would you respond to Jesus today? Is that you? Nobody's looking around. This is a safe place. Just you and me. Would you make that decision? Is there anyone? Is there anyone that would respond to the message of the gospel of Christ today? Is there anyone? Maybe you're here and maybe you know that God's called you to this church. Maybe He's called you to invest and you know it. Maybe you need to come today and join. We would love to formally invite you, for you to formally be a part of what God is doing here in Elkmont through Lindsay Lane North. We're going to push you right towards small group. 
We're going to do that. We're going to provide accountability. Hopefully that you'll do that. Maybe you need to join today. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe there's some things that are holding you back. Whatever it is, whatever decision that you need to make, I'm here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. There's counselors in the back. Would love to talk to you about any decision you need to make today. Maybe you need to get your baptism in order. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you've been walking away from Him. Whatever it is that you need to do, we want to give you that opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and then you respond. Father, we thank you for this invitation. Lord, I pray for one that needs to respond to you today. I pray you give them boldness and strength, God, to move from their seat and make the decision they need to make today for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray.